Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Right now, I'm in a hotel room in Northern Virginia, part of the Washington metro area, just south of Dulles Airport. This part of the DMV is peppered with golf courses, tech companies, and defense contracting firms. It's also the part of Virginia where Democrats needed a really good showing to win this past gubernatorial election. And that's why I'm here. Here's what it sounded like on the ground in the blue heart of blue Fairfax County, Tuesday night. All righty, Virginia, we won this thing! For the first time in 12 years, Republicans won a statewide race in Virginia. And it wasn't just any victory. To claim the seat, Glenn Youngkin had to beat former governor and Bill and Hillary's BFF, Terry McAuliffe, who is Democratic Party royalty, like 2020 DNC superdelegate kind of royalty. He's a national Democrat figure. He's operated at the highest levels of government for 43 years. Jeff Rowe and Kristen Davison are Youngkin's chief strategists. Going all right, how are you? The authors behind this win. You know, I live on the Maryland side, uh, but I've been I spent a ton of time in Loudoun County just because my kids play sports over there. Charlie Matessian is Politico's senior politics editor. McAuliffe ran a crappy campaign. There's just no question about it. In the days since the election, everyone's been pointing fingers at what exactly happened and how to respond to the results. But beyond all the things Democrats did wrong, Terry McAuliffe did not compete for those votes at all. The really big story here is how Republicans managed to make Virginia red again. What you're seeing on Fox News when when there's someone with a little bit of fire coming out of their ears over CRT on TV, we weren't seeing that as much and we weren't adjusting what we were doing on the ground when we would see that on TV. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. And today I'm talking to the people who may have found the way for Republicans to run and win in a post-Trump world. Democrats now are the revolutionaries. It just took them 10 months, what took us 10 years. Even as the former president tries to unofficially join the ticket. Glenn has been an incredible success and will truly make Virginia great again. But first, a bit of context. The main takeaway was it was a uh, pretty thorough butt-kicking. Charlie Matessian lives in the D.C. area. And he has been decoding races like this for decades. Uh, I think if you drill down into the exit polls, there are some pretty fascinating numbers in there that sort of explain the architecture of the uh, thoroughness of that defeat. In 2020, Joe Biden won uh, 53-45 in the suburbs of Virginia. Young can flip that. Uh, in this election, he, he won them 53-47. So, you know, obviously there there uh, was some movement in the suburbs and it was pretty significant. Performance with independence. Again, Joe Biden won independence in Virginia, uh, 57-38 in 2020. Glenn Youngkin won them 54-45. So those are two really important flips. Let's back up a little bit and talk about the two national figures that in some ways uh, dominated the race. Well, I shouldn't say dominated the race, but at least in the case of Terry McAuliffe, he wanted Donald Trump to dominate this race. I'm here with you, and they've got Trump over there. And think about this for and a Yunkin, second, And uh, had a, maybe a slightly more nuanced view of Biden and Bidenism, but certainly Biden's popularity or unpopularity was a big factor in this race. So let's start with the president. How do you think he uh, affected the race in Virginia? 
McAuliffe ran a crappy campaign. There's just no question about it. He spent his entire uh, campaign railing against Trump. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Trump. You know, uh, that's a pretty risky strategy to begin with, obsessing over Trump and when and and not really having a, a forward-thinking message of of offering anything to voters. I think that the heavy focus on Trump did not do him very much good, especially when Youngkin was not a very Trumpy guy. Biden, on the other hand, is really um, unpopular in in Northern Virginia these days. He's underwater now in the uh, approval ratings in Virginia. And if you look at Trump and Biden, they're both very similarly positioned in Virginia. You know, we often think that Donald Trump is you know widely loathed in Virginia because he lost by about ten points, and and it's true. He's he's not very popular in Virginia at all. But the truth is, like right now, that's not much different than than Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden's uh, job approval ratings are about the same uh, with over half the people disapproving of his job. You know, Yunkin never mentioned Trump, really didn't mention Biden all that much. Can you talk a little bit about this sort of complicated two-track strategy he had to make sure he generated lots of enthusiasm in the Trumpy base, but also held his own um, among the white-collar suburbanites of Northern Virginia? How did he do both? Running statewide, especially in a race as closely watched nationally as this one was, it's not easy. It's really hard to do it and to do it well. But he was exceptionally effective at threading that needle between embracing Trump and keeping distance from him. Most candidates that have tried to do that, and a lot have, that have been in similar positions in other states or in other races to Yunkin, they were unable to do it. They always alienated one side or another. Uh, Yunkin was very effective at driving that balance and making sure that the Trump base always viewed him as somebody who, if he didn't embrace Trump, was not ashamed of Trump at all. Charlie, if you were to ask Yunkin's uh, chief strategists anything, uh, what would it be? What do you want to know from the campaign brain trust about this race? I'd be really curious to see how the cultural issues were polling. How did they drill it down? What were the issues that really pissed off suburban voters, like when, when you brought it to them? And of course, Biden, too. I want to know, like, how much of a drag was Biden? So Yunkin's chief strategists, the brain trust behind this win, are on a bit of a victory lap. First, Kristen Davison, who probably hasn't gotten a lot of sleep in the past few weeks. I was one of the uh, consultants on the race here. I was more minute to minute, day to day here uh, in Virginia, working with Jeff and the Yunkin campaign. And I did everything that Kristen told me to do. <laughs> Along with Yunkin's campaign strategist, Jeff Rowe. I mean, this is this is like getting hard, more work done for it. Who honestly doesn't really want to be here talking to me, or at least doesn't have time for our recording instructions. You'd be surprised how little I care, but okay. He was the guy responsible for Yunkin's campaign narrative. A lot of times the... Um, tyranny of the immediate can get in the way of the narrative and strategy and that sort of thing. And so I tried to kind of stay out of the weeds and stay focused. Let's start with some of the issues that, um, especially if you weren't paying close attention day to day, that really popped into the national conversation. And I'm curious how you think the national conversation and the local conversation, the the tension between those affected the race, because there's so much, the conventional wisdom nowadays is all all of these, uh, especially statewide races, have been nationalized, right? And, you know, cable news drives political uh, c- campaigns. And you guys 
focus on a lot of local issues, two of them, related ones, critical race theory and education. There's been an enormous amount of uh, drama around CRT and how you guys used that issue. Explain from your perspective how those issues affected this campaign and if there are any lessons going forward for other uh, Republican candidates, both locally and, and nationally, on some of the issues that really popped in Virginia in 2021. Well, I'll tell you just real quick, and Kristen, I'll have you do it as a follow-up too, but there's a lot of misnomers about it. And and so if we lost, you wouldn't have me on the podcast to explain it. So since we won, we get to write the history. We were still going to have you, up. so it didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I well, don't know if you guys would have wanted to go. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's probably more to the point. So what our first stop in the general election was Thomas Jefferson School in Northern Virginia, which had lowered their academic standards. It was the, literally the first stop. And so we were running on education, cost of living, jobs and economic opportunity. We, that was our campaign plan from the beginning. Um, in the education bucket, though, like the economic bucket, it ma- means different things to different people. Jobs and the economy, that's a big bucket. So that means if you don't have a job, that means you, you want jobs, right? Jobs and the economy. If you make, if you have a job, you want to keep more take-home pay, okay? So that's kind of the ec- economy and you want more money in your savings or you want to, there's all these different kind of pieces. In Virginia, predominantly, it's cost of living. It's getting too expensive to live and work and raise a family in Virginia. That's getting to be a prohibitive factor. And so the cost of living was always a big piece. To the education piece, though, which I think is what has gotten the national conversation, and we never gave two shits about what the national conversation was. Because at the height of any day on MSNBC and CNN and, and Fox News, at the height of any day, there were there are about, you know, 9 million people watching. At the height of prime time. And of those people, there's about six to 700,000 people in Virginia watching those programs. And there's no undecided voters there. 0.0. So those voters are all locked in. They knew who they're voting for because they're, they're watching political news. That's why you go on, you know. Your own favorite networks is to say your website three times and raise 35,000 bucks. So, um, there's not for eyeballs. You do local for eyeballs. And that's where you get, that's why you drive your content. And there's, you know, local news is still the driver. But in education, you have CRT, which some people get animated about CRT. Some people get animated about school choice. Some people get animated about advanced math. Some people get animated about school resource officers. And so, we were having a hard time. Those people don't fit in the same rooms together. And so Terry McAuliffe said it better than we could have ever said it, which is that he wanted to restrict the parents' involvement in their children's education, wanted to put government in between. And so when he said that, then we could say parents matter. Garrett, Terry wants government in between you and your child's life. And then it spoke to everybody. And we didn't have to explain it to anyone because they heard what they wanted to hear in that message. That's really interesting. So he, so those, those disparate groups that maybe you even sometimes had trouble uh, unifying, he helped you put the the school choice folks and the CRT folks and the advanced class folks and education became, because everyone cares about education. So suddenly it was whatever you ascribed to that message. And it was no longer just the kind of culture war issue that the national media ha- ha played it as. Yeah, they picked up that one part, but Kristen was, was dogged on this. I think that would be a fair word to call it that we were going to be playing defense on this if we weren't playing offense. And it put us in a position because we were playing offense already, trying to get these groups together in the same room to take advantage of it when it then it did happen. 
But there was a cost to that. The cost of it to our messaging was you can't have too many messages or you don't have any. On election day, Terry had 11 commercials running. We had three. We had very few commercials because we had a very simple, you know, delivered message. If you had been advising McAuliffe, knowing your own strengths and weaknesses, what's the one thing you would have advised the McAuliffe campaign to do um, that would have been difficult for, for you guys? So the debate happens. Um, he says what he says. No media tweet about it. He goes up, doesn't get it. He does. He goes first for his spin room. We don't spin anyway, but um, with the candidate, nobody asked him a single question about it. Everybody's sitting there like a bump on a log. Kristen goes up and says, winners don't spin. We then come back to the campaign office. We know we have this moment and um, we have an add up, like she says, three hours later, because we thought for sure he would be on Morning Joe walking it back. On October 18th, he trafficked a spot that said, uh, of course, Dorothy and I have are involved in our kids' education and we value parental involvement and X, Y, and Z. And, and yet even then, after 20 long days, uh, even then he said, and Glenn Youngkin took my words out of context, which then let us go back in and rerun the legs off of it again. That was a mistake that he made that we could not believe. Kristen, all right, outside of that one, what's, a, what's something else, if you were advising him, where you thought, wow, they, they missed a huge opportunity, we were vulnerable on X, and they never actually went there? Um, I, I would have hit us on education first a lot harder than they did. I think the mistake that, and that's actually what I was afraid of for most of the time, um, to, I think, annoying everyone about it. But Terry focused so much on Trump and, and made his campaign to be so much about Trump and then abortion and then... I think climate change was in there for a minute. It's like they literally took the Rolodex of all the, the base issues and tried to hit us as being extreme on them. And what they should have done instead was go towards the typical, you know, the Democrats are very good at painting Republicans as being bad on education, saying we're going to like to Jeff to Jeff's point, um, you know, the will fire teachers and cut pay. Yeah. And having been governor before. He had some of a record there. He sh- he should have hit us first and disqualified the issue. I mean, this this the education issue was bubbling in Virginia since January, since school board meetings in January. It was about fi- going back to school five days a week then, but you could see something moving, and, and they didn't take advantage of that. Right, because as a Republican campaign, you know that Democrats very often in these races have an advantage on that issue. So you arguably could have been playing on opponents' ground. And they just never sort of owned it the way that you perhaps you were worried they could have. That's right. Yeah, I, I think rare. I, I haven't before this campaign had not seen a Republican candidate um, in any poll. When you ask who you trust more, which candidate you trust more on an issue, Democrats usually dominate education. And in, in some of the few polls before the election in this race, we were winning education by nine points, which is really unheard wow. of for a Republican candidate. All right. Let's talk about the two national figures that um, mattered a little bit in the race, uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. How did your campaign approach the this sort of monumental figure in Republican politics um, that your opponent wanted to sort of define you guys with? And Jeff, I, I should point out, if people don't know, you, of course, worked for Ted Cruz in the Republican primaries in 2016, right? And, and, and ran against Trump. So you're familiar with this guy. Let's unpack 
you know, Trump in Virginia? Well, 44 percent of people impacts their vote on who he supports or opposes. And so that 44, say that again, 44 percent of Virginia voters care about his endorsement, in other words. Yep. We'll act based on his endorsement. Um, pro, pro or con. That number was never 43. It was never 45. It's 44, start to finish. And so the much like the, you know, do you want to be on Dancing with the Stars, where there's about 3.1 million Virginians <laughs> watching, or do you want to be on Rachel Maddow, where there's, you know, 31,000 people watching, or do you want to play this national game, you want to play the local game? Um, it's just not close. And so we were actually every day that he was talking about Trump was a day that he was not hitting us on something that would be meaningful. Every day the press was covering Trump or Biden. It was a day and similar numbers on Biden, by the way, a little bit less on Biden, like 35 percent on Biden uh, cared about what Biden was going to do. And so there's just not a lot. If this is Senate race, absolutely. Like stick them to the Senate guy and like break them, you know, run until their back breaks. I mean, that's what you do. And why, why is that different? The gubernatorial race and the Senate race really does make a difference? Oh, the prism is huge. In fact, Kristen yeah. and I will probably in a couple of days be doing this on another campaign. You know, the exact thing that we're saying not to do now, the Terry's biggest mistake, we will be doing it in a Senate race soon, coming to you soon, Democrats. But in a governor's race, if you go knock on a door, I dare you, go knock on a door and say, I'm running for governor, they're going to say, oh, hi, are you, you know, Republican or Democrat? You tell them. That's typically partisanship is typically an early question. And they say, what do you think about education? What do you think about jobs? What do you think about roads and bridges and that sort of thing? It's all like local stuff. If you run for Senate, they're like, did you see, you know, Biden fell asleep and in the climate change conference? They say, did you see, you know, Donald Trump play golf yesterday? I mean, it's like it's all national stuff. It's a completely different prism. Congress and Senate, it's ideological. Politics is not local. It's all national but it's governor, it's profile, it's vision, it's leadership, it's intrinsic qualities. We even poll it different. We ask people, do, do they care about people like me? And so if you have your own brand like Glenn did, and it's hard, I mean, it helps to have about a half a billion dollars in the bank and be able to put $20 million in the campaign and raise another 40. That helps. So you can have your own brand in a very expensive media market. Then endorsements don't matter as much anyway. I mean, we're spending $130 million between the two of us. Like what Biden's going to do and what Trump's going to do are just not that big a deal. And so much so that Biden was more popular than Terry anyway. So it was never going to be part of our culture to associate our brand with any other Republican when we were creating our own brand for Glenn. And our own brand for Glenn was not in the image of anyone else. And when he got in, you know, our advice was you don't have to choose to be a Huckabee Republican or a Cruz Republican or a Rand Paul Republican or a Trump Republican or a Romney Republican. You don't have to make that choice. You're a Yunkin Republican. Plant your plant your post and that's your guidepost and go be your own guy. Otherwise, the media and everybody's all the pundits will try and place you in some camp and definitely McAuliffe will. I mean, wh- one question I have is how hard was it to maintain that discipline, because I know from the Trump universe, there were some tensions between the Trump world and, and Yunkin world. How hard was it to keep him out of the race, to keep your candidate defined on his own and not as uh, a, a Trump Republican? You know, it actually wasn't as, as hard as I think the question suggests. We started 
defining Glenn's brand very early on and kind of planting the stakes in the ground of the issues that we were going to focus on. So, you know, cost of living, education, and safety. And the other part, I mean, part of our strategy, part of Glenn's culture from, from day one was this big tent approach. So, you know, he would frequently say on the trail, I want never Trumpers, forever Trumpers, all under here. And it really, you know, again, it goes back to candidate quality that helped a little bit. Um, but, you know, people, it really resonated with, with people on the ground that, that Trump, because we didn't nationalize the race, because we kept it focused on Virginia and what was happening here, it did not come up as often in terms of, you know, keeping anyone out of the race or this and that. It just, it wasn't a primal focus of, of what we were doing because we were so focused on what was going on on the ground and in, in, in Virginia. On Biden, similarly, I mean, a lot of the times we interpret these off-year races as a rejection of the incumbent president. But it sounds like what, you were, what you're saying is maybe that helped uh, create a favorable environment for your candidate, but you didn't really run an anti-Biden campaign? Or let's, let's unpack how Biden played into the, to the race. Well, I think, you know, for sure, once Biden's favorability numbers started falling, it helped just from a from an environment standpoint. Yeah. But if we had only focused on Biden and the national uh, environment, you know, you win by it, you die by it, wherever you tie yourself to it. So we needed to have that strategy on the ground focusing on Virginia, which, you know, allowed us to take advantage of a favorable environment. We didn't put one TV ad that focused on Biden or Afghanistan yeah. or um, and Glenn rarely ever talked about Biden on the trail. Rarely. Jeff, final word on this. I think, you know, the the lessons in this is have your own brand because nobody likes a knockoff. And everyone that's trying to knock off, you know, the previous presidents, you know, is a is a joke. There's only one Donald Trump. Everybody needs to remember that. And so these knockoff versions try and do their own little you know, impress scenario of him is a mistake. And so be your own person. Don't give up on votes. And Democrats are given a gift. The, the lesson in 22, I mean, the, the environment's good for us. It's obviously on full display in New Jersey as well, is that the Democrats have jumped the shark and they're talk, they're the revolutionaries and they are talking like they are, are in charge with 60% majorities. They're believing their own press releases and they're putting themselves in their own bunker and they will not be able to get out of it. And when Jayapal is the speaker designee and Nancy Pelosi looks like the moderate, the wheels are off. And that's probably a lesson for 22 for the Democrats. But don't show me this to any Democrats because we need that to continue to happen. Jeff, Kristen, thank you so much for breaking down the race and, and joining us and hope you guys get some sleep. Thank you very much. See you guys. Thanks. So what really strikes me after hearing Jeff and Kristen talk about the behind-the-scenes strategy of the Yunkin campaign is this issue of education was much more complicated and, dare I say, nuanced than the national conversation about the campaign portrayed it. They knew exactly how many voters were really worked up about critical race theory, how many were worked up about issues over advanced placement courses. So when they were discussing the education issue as a much broader umbrella for all this other stuff, um, that paints a much more complicated view of the race and has big implications for both Republicans and Democrats 
in terms of what they take away from this election going forward. So back to Charlie. So Charlie, people keep saying Republicans have to do better with non-white voters, and Trump and now Youngkin are proving that, no, you can keep driving up the white vote. Yeah, it was pretty It was pretty stunning because Trump has turbocharged the rural vote beginning in 2016, and then he amped it up again in 2020. And now what we saw in Virginia is that Youngkin turbocharged it once again. I mean, just when you thought you couldn't squeeze any more juice out of that lemon, Youngkin managed to. He found more votes, and that is a reflection of his ability to sort of walk that balancing line, uh, I think, to focus on cultural issues that mattered a lot in those kinds of places. And he did exceptionally well and made an enormous leap when it came to white women non-college voters. One of the interesting things about how successful Youngkin was with especially white working class voters is this is a guy who's worth several hundred million dollars. He had the kind of like Mitt Romney-like background, but McAuliffe, he seemed unable to, you know, turn Youngkin into the kind of out-of-touch rich guy the way that, say, Barack Obama did with, uh, you know, with, with, with Mitt Romney. Do you think that was more an issue of McAuliffe's own background, being unable to take advantage of that potential weakness of Youngkin? There was a real irony in Youngkin's ability to crush it in uh, uh, economically struggling rural areas. I mean, here's this pri- you know super wealthy private equity executive from the D.C. suburbs. But I think there's, there was an enormous difference. I don't think McAuliffe really was going to be able to do that because, number one, there would have been a hypocrisy problem. McAuliffe is, you know, probably you know one of the best known and most effective money men in the Democratic Party. But the other problem is, you know, what he needed was a huge turnout in Northern Virginia, particularly in the suburbs. Well, a character like Glenn Youngkin, a private equity executive in the Northern Virginia suburbs is sort of a familiar character. And so I think it would have been a real struggle to make that stick. A lot of Democrats are looking at the results and saying, yep, this is just a little bit of a throwback race. This is how Republicans used to win statewide in a place like Virginia. You do all of the kind of um, racially tinged and racist appeals, sort of sub rosa. It's all about dog whistle, and that's really what CRT represented. What's your view of, of that and that sort of criticism of, of the left's interpretation of the results? I think you. He- you have to begin by stipulating, like, of course, race mattered. Uh, race has always mattered in American politics, and especially in this race. There were lots of uh, places that, that where race made a difference at the margins. Now, having said that, I also think it's it's kind of mass suicide for the Democrats to paint these results or voters who, who voted in large numbers for Yunkin as racist. Number one, like, if you've ever been to these places, and I've spent a ton of time in Prince William and, and Loudoun counties, the reason they have become democratic is because they're so diverse. They are rapidly diversifying places. Uh, I mean, these are not the kinds of places that are overwhelmingly white and and deeply hostile uh, to people of color. And the other thing too is it's it's really hard to make the argument this this was you know blatantly hundred percent you know, example of racism when at the same time, many of those voters were voting in an African-American woman to be Republican, to be the lieutenant governor and a Cuban-American Republican to be uh, attorney general. I'm always bad at the goodbyes. I never know what to say. I like Irish goodbyes. Just hang up. Right. (laughs) Great talking to you again, Ryan. And that's our show. Our producers are Carlos Prieto, 
and Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament, and our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. And before you go, I want to tell you about Global Insider, a podcast from Politico where each episode brings you intimate conversations with world leaders. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening. 